for getting up and singing tonight. And I'm uh, thinking about when I was that age and uh, to sing with a youth group like that. Um, well, I, I appreciate them. Good spirit, good attitude, and <laughs> I would have done it if my dad and mom would have told me to, but, I, but they had a great attitude. I appreciate it, and good singing. Um, I remember in about 1991, so that would be, what, 32 years ago, uh, my wife was with me, and I was preaching at a, at a uh, camp meeting in Mississippi, Kosciuszko, Mississippi, and uh, there was a lighthouse children's home there, a girl's home. And they had a camp meeting every year, and they'd get preachers to come in and have a camp meeting and try to raise support and awareness of the, of the uh, ministry there. And so I remember this particular year's outdoor meeting, and I remember this particular year there was a singing family there, a man and his wife, and I think they had three daughters, maybe four, and they did good gospel music, just really, really good. And they said, now we have a young man with us, going to marry one of the daughters, and he's with us right now for a few days, and I'm going to ask him to come and sing. And he got up, and with great accompaniment, he sang Midnight Cry. And uh, I'd, I'd listened to Gold City Quartet sing it, and they had a guy named Ivan Parker back in those days that really, really could sing Midnight Cry. This young man got up to sing, and I thought, well, this probably be good, but it ain't no... Ivan Parker, you know, that's what I said. Whoa, man, he sang it. It was awesome. I spoke in, t- no, I didn't speak in tongues, but I, I really got excited. And it was just, it was absolutely, it was absolutely terrific. So I went up to him later and I said, man, that's the best I've heard. The only person I've ever heard singing about like that was Ivan Parker. And he said, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. He said, a real polite young man. He said, you know, when I wrote that song, I said, say what? And it was Greg Day, and he wrote that song. And he said, actually, my brother, he had a brother named Chuck, and he said, Chuck and I wrote the song, but primarily uh, I, was a, I was, and Chuck helped me with it. And so I got to visit with him about that song, and I thought, well, no wonder you sang it with such passion and heart. But I love that song, and I'm looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ as well. I've been preaching on that a little bit here lately in some meetings. And uh, I love the Apostle Paul's words when he said, I fought a good fight. I've, I've kept the faith. I've, I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. And there are times I'm hearing people say now and all the confusion and COVID and the after effects and where we are in our country right now. I just wish the Lord would come and get us out of here. I just wish the Lord would come and get us. Wrong motive. I said, that's the wrong motive. We're not to love our disappearing as much as we're to love his appearing. That's the main thing. Well, that went over good. But anyway, go to Matthew chapter 17, the gospel of Matthew and chapter number 17. Now, in Matthew 17, did I say 17? Let's go to 16. That's actually where I'm going to be preaching from. So that would be best if we read from there. Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, it is a passage well known for when Jesus and the disciples were near Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus said to the disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And some said this, some said that. And he said, But whom say ye that I am? And that's where we're we're all so happy for Simon Peter, because he spoke up and hit the nail on the head and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the fundamental truth of all the Bible right there, that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus said that he has well said. And he told Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven, revealed that to you. And we're all so happy for Simon Peter because it didn't always go that well when he spoke up. 
But in this case, it did. And after that, uh, Jesus talked to the disciples and talked to them about the fact that he is uh, the rock. And he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, not on Peter the stone, but upon Jesus the rock uh, that he's going to build his church. And then he talks about the authority given to the church. And in verse number 20, you'll notice he said this, Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now that just sounds so, uh, it sounds so strange to our ears that Jesus would say, You well said, my father showed this to you, you didn't figure this out yourself, that I am the Christ, the Son of God, now don't tell anybody. That just doesn't, that doesn't fit how we normally hear and look at it. So what is that about? Well, we're going to find out what that's about as we begin in verse 21. How about we stand together for the reading of the Word? And we don't have a long passage. We're going to read verse 21 through 26. Verse 21. See that paragraph marker there? Those little paragraph markers, they're not always a help as you read your Bible. Many, many times they are, such as this case. And it says in verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he, Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. That moment of glory didn't last long, did it? Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Just a little word there before we move on. If you look at life in verse 25, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But if he'll lose his life for my sake, and then the word is soul in verse 26, exact same word. They are the exact same word. So Jesus is talking about a man's life, lose your life or save your life. Father, we pray your blessings now upon our time together once more. We have had a delightful time being in your house and singing your praises and being reminded again of the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, by message and song. And the ministry of the young people, as they sang tonight, that you are worthy of praise. I'm thinking of the 113th Psalm that says, Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be his name forever from this time forth and forevermore. And then the psalm ends, Praise ye the Lord. And so we thank you that you are worthy and at our best, we are not uh, able, O oh God, to give the praise of which you are worthy. But as has been suggested tonight, we come and from our hearts and as we lift up our voices, we do sing praises to your wonderful name. And we know that that is acceptable in thy sight when it comes from genuine hearts that adore you and love you and recognize, O oh God, that you are worthy of such praise. So bless our time in this passage tonight. Help us, help me. I want to rightly divide the word of truth, and I want to speak with plainness and clarity of thought 
and communicate, O oh God, in a way that would make a difference in the lives of your people. And we'll thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless. You may be seated. A few years ago, I was uh, preaching in a revival meeting in, in uh, the state of Massachusetts, the Boston area. And uh, while I was there, the young man that pastored the church, his father had graduated from Heartland Baptist Bible College there in Oklahoma City and had been in our church, so I'd been his pastor and such as that. And uh, he's, I think, maybe the third oldest guy that ever graduated from Heartland in the 25 years that we've had the college there. And so there's a few years after his graduation, and so he comes to visit his son, who is a pastor of the church, and then also, so we'd have fellowship, and he wanted to know, would I have breakfast with him one, one morning? And so I did, and I met him, and I noticed when I was sitting there waiting on him, I was drinking coffee and just looking around, and he came walking in. And here he is, uh, probably by then mid-60s, it would be his age, not, not old, just a young fella, uh, mid-60s, and he came in, and he had on a T-shirt. And this T-shirt manifested that he had been doing some work in the gym, and I'm talking about the barrel chest, I'm talking about the full and broad shoulders, I'm talking about the biceps, and he looked in, I thought to myself, I'm glad uh, Bruce and I are friends. <laughs> you know, I'd hate to tangle with this guy. And he came in, we we're sitting there talking, and I said, well, Bruce, it looks like you've been taking care of yourself and working out in the gym. Oh, no, and he tried to be real modest about it. And I said, don't, don't try to be modest. You wore the T-shirt, so I'd notice, and now you're trying to act like, oh, it's no big deal. And so we got to talking, and he told me what he's doing. And I said, wow, that's something. He said, well, Brother Sam, you could, you could do this. And I looked at him again, and I said, no. Uh, that, it, that's not me. Yeah. Well, he said, you could do better than you are. You say that you're not very strong and you're not in shape and you could get in shape and you could do this and on and on. And he started trying to tell me how I could join these health clubs that give you a coach and, you know, you can build up and everything. And he said, you might ought to think about doing that. And I said, no. And by then, uh, let's see, I'm uh, 70 years old. And I said, no. And he said, well, why not? I said, I don't want to. That's why. And I said, besides that, it costs too much. That's why I'm not going to do it. He said, no, you can join these health clubs with just a little bit of money. It doesn't take much money. And I said, Bruce, it's not the money. I'm a Baptist preacher. I got plenty of money. That's not it. And I said, I'm talking about the cost of getting up, going to the gym, putting myself through that exercise. I'm tired. I'm saving all my energy for preaching. I'm just not going to do that. He said, okay, well, you could, and such as that. Well, it wasn't long after that, and I was in the state of Washington on the other side of, the, of our world. And I was in the state of Washington preaching a youth camp. The young man that uh, pastored the church, that the church owned the camp, uh, was there. He's one of our graduates also. And so we're at this camp in uh, mid-south Washington, right above the Columbia River, but east to west, about the middle of the state of Washington. And you look over to the west from that camp, and there stands, uh, stands Mount Adams. Now, Mount Adams is uh, 12,280 feet, third highest mountain in the Cascade Range, and it's snow-covered year-round. So here it is, about 100 degrees there at the camp, dry and arid and such as that. And you look at this snow-covered mountain, and I mean, it's, it's, it's a good ways away, but it just, it's, it's just awesome. It's beautiful. You don't, we don't have many of those in Oklahoma. You know what I mean? And so I, I, you can't take your eyes off of it. And so I said to TJ, the young man that graduated from Heartland, I said, man, TJ, that, that mountain just gets my attention. He said, I said, I can't imagine what it must look like from the top of that mountain. And then look at the Cascade Range. And he said, I've been up it. I said, no kidding. He said, yeah, about 12 guys uh, of our church. He said, we got together. We left at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning and got back down at uh, 6 o'clock at night. And he said, up and down in one day, almost nonstop. He said, about kill me. And I said, wow, that's amazing. What was it like? Breathtaking, unbelievable. He said, hey, you're coming back up here in another year or so. Why don't you, we'll get together and we'll go up that mountain and you can go with us. 
I said, no, I'm, I'm not going up that mountain. And he said, well, go slower. I said, I don't think you want to take four days to go up and down that mountain. No, I'm not going to do it. And he pressed me on it and said, you know, I said, no, it's the cost. And he said, no, no, we'll have stuff for you. If you just have a good pair of boots, I'll tell you what to get, blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm not talking about the money. I pulled the same thing on him. And I said, I'm not going to pay the price that it takes to go up there. If somebody wants to take me up in a helicopter, I'd be glad to look at it from the top. Otherwise, I will never see the top of that mountain. I guarantee you that. Now, the reason I mention that is this. Uh, I said the cost was too high. I'm not willing to pay the price to look like my friend Bruce, <laughs> and I'm not willing to pay the price to get to the top of Mount Adams. I'm just not interested in that at this time of my life. I'm just not. And so I mentioned the price. Now, you and I know, don't we, that in our life, if we're genuine and sincere about our fellowship of Jesus Christ as a believer, we know that we ought to be growing ever stronger and climbing ever higher. Now, don't sit there and look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. I think you do. We're to build up ourselves on the most holy faith. We're to have exercise in the Word of God. And we should be in our life, as if we are sincere about our devotion to Christ and His Word and to the person of Jesus Christ, then we should be growing stronger, no place to stop, as long as you have the mental faculties to comprehend the Word of God, there is no place to stop growing in the Lord. Somebody say amen, or I'll have to stop and preach on that. I'm just saying, there's no place to stop in growing in the Lord, in our understanding, in our walk with Him, in our fellowship with Him, our communion with Him. There's no place to stop. And we should be growing ever stronger and climbing ever higher in that spiritual realm or spiritual level, we should be going that way. Why is it so few do? Why? I'm not, I'm not accusing, I didn't mean to pour cold water on the whole service here. I, I'm just saying, let's be realistic about it. And I, 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 you know, there are people that get around more than I do, I know. But I'm, I tell you, I, I get to preach in a lot of places, in a lot of situations, a lot of church. I got to pastor two wonderful churches uh, for 36 years of the 56 years we've been in the ministry. And I've tried to pay attention. I was sharing with a pastor today. I'm, a, I'm not proud of this, but in Bible college, I was, I was not a good student till I got married and marrying a straight-A student that can really make you look bad if you're not doing your work, that helped me and motivated me. Plus, I was growing up a little bit, too, and so I, I wasn't a great student. But I've tried to pay attention through the course of time, and I'm in a continuing education program. I don't have any degrees that really count. I mean, I had a three-year degree from a Bible college. I don't have any postgraduate work. I don't have a master's degree. I don't have a Ph.D. I don't have any of that kind of thing. And so, but I have tried to pay attention, and I have tried to be a perpetual student and perpetually learn, and when I go places and I'm around people and I'm different churches, I try to observe and see and learn and understand things. And I get to fellowship with a lot of God's servants, and it doesn't take somebody older than me to teach me anything. I can learn from anybody that's serious about walking with God and serious about the Bible, and, and I try to do that. And so I'm not saying this from a critical or hateful standpoint, but I can just tell you as a pastor then at Southwest Baptist Church, for example, and Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater, where I was for 16 years, that we would have guest preachers in, and they would say, what about that couple there? What about that person there? They just seem to really be a blessing. And most of the time, they would hit the nail on the head, and I would say, yeah, those people, they're just, they, they, yeah, they're a blessing. They are a true blessing. But I have to tell you, the ones that were the most blessing we're only doing what a Christian ought to do. They were just living for Jesus. They really weren't anything different than just what a Christian should be. So why did they stand out? Come on, you've seen it in church life. You know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And even some of those that shine the most, I'm saying that the Apostle Paul would have mentioned in Romans 16. And that he would have talked about at the end of 1 Corinthians and chapter 16. Some people that he called their name. And, and I guarantee you that the vast majority of those people were only doing what spirit-led and spirit-filled people ought to be doing. And excuse me, spirit-filled and spirit-led ought to be the testimony of all of our lives. Who in their right mind would say, I'm a believer. I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have trusted him as my personal Savior. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in his word. I believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But I, have no, I feel no sense of responsibility to live a spirit-filled life. No, the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, and he said, be ye filled with the Spirit. And that be ye filled doesn't mean it happens once and boom, you're a spirit-filled man. Actually, if you study it out, it is actually saying be ye being filled. It's a continual thing. And I might be filled with the Spirit today and I might give in to the ways of the flesh tomorrow. Who's not capable of that? Everybody that lives in this flesh is capable of that. But what we're supposed to be is spirit-led and spirit-filled people. Well, then why is it that, uh, why, why isn't everybody that way? I think I know. It costs. I'm not pumping iron because I'm not going to pay the price. I miss the days my wife would say, get my arm and say, nice. Now she says, what happened? What's wrong here? I miss those days, but not enough to do anything about it. Is everybody with me here? Yeah. And that's, I'm not going to pay the price. And if you look at some, quote, super Christian in your eye, unquote, and say, I wish I could be like that. Be like what? Well, have that spirit, have that attitude, that willingness, that servitude, that joy, that presence, that peace. Come on. Everything that characterizes a spirit-filled life. I wish I could do that. You can. You're supposed to. <laughs> That's the way we're supposed to live. Why don't more people live that way? Because it costs. It costs. There's a price to pay. Now, what we have to understand is when Jesus is talking to his disciples in our account, this is not a salvation text. Jesus isn't telling the men that are with him how to be saved. Well, it says, what shall a man give in exchange for his, uh, what if he should gain the whole world, lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Uh, that is a salvation text. No, it's not. Well, that's why I've heard it preached. It's still not. If some preacher's in here and said, I preach it as a salvation text, you shouldn't have. <laughs> I don't know any other way to say it. That's not what it's about. Uh, Jesus is addressing his disciples here about their fellowship and about being a disciple and a true follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that he goes into this kind of an explanation, and we have that kind of account, is they had a misconceived notion of what it was to follow Jesus. They didn't understand discipleship. They didn't understand at all. And it's evident when we start reading down in verse 21. Because Jesus began to tell his disciples, now look at verse 21, I must go to Jerusalem. Excuse me, excuse me just a second. By the time we come to this stage, we're in the third year of Jesus' time with his disciples. We're well into the third year of Jesus' time with his disciples. And by now, surely the disciples know that Jesus only did what pleased the Father. The Father's will was always his concern. That's why he came. And he only said the things that pleased the Father. So with that in mind, look at what he says. Uh, 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 to show, he began to show his disciples, verse 21, how that he must, I must go to Jerusalem. If he says he must go to Jerusalem and then says what he says about going to Jerusalem, then <laughs> you know Jesus is not stumbling around, not really knowing what he's saying. They knew he knew what he was saying. And so he said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes. And here's the one that got him. And be killed and raised again the third day. I'm not sure they even heard that. 
But they did hear, I will go there, be delivered into their hands, and be killed. I will die. And the response of Simon Peter, maybe only from him, because he was the quickest, I don't know. But Peter took him. You know what it means to take him? It means he got a hold of him. It means he laid hands on him. He took him. He is so stunned by what he has just heard. He is so shocked by what he has just heard from the lips of Jesus that he takes him and says, this shall not be unto thee. Gets a hold of him. And I thought, what kind of audacity did that take? Because here we have what we know to be, and Peter knew to be, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He just said so. And yet when the Christ, the Son of the living God, spoke and said, here's what's going to happen, he actually got a hold of him and said, oh, no, no, not under my watch. This is not going to happen. Here we are in a military area here. And so in this military area, I've thought about this. Well, I never served in the military, but my two brothers did. My older brothers are 8 and 10 years older than me, and they both served in the Army. And so I can just tell from their stories and, you know, what I've known from being around military people all my life here and there. Well, I know that if a, if a superior officer gives by his authority an order to you, and your response to him is to get a hold of him and say, now let me tell you how it's going to be. Probably your career is going to get a little rough uh, along the way, don't you think? And I, I've thought about it also with an authoritative dad. My dad had authority, and he exercised authority. And I thought about my dad saying, uh, Sam, when I was a boy, you're not going to the sale with me today, farm sale down there where you bid on equipment and different things and cattle and so forth. You're not going to sale with me today. Instead, you're cleaning out the chicken house. I'm trying to think, now what would have happened if I would got a hold of my dad and said, now let me tell you something. I'm not going to the sale with you, okay, but I am going fishing. And after that, I'm going to da-da-da-da-da. I don't ever remember doing that to my dad. And if I would have done it, I wouldn't remember. I'd be in <laughs> la-la land somewhere. You just don't do that. And here he is, the son of God, and Simon Peter is so bold as to take, as to take a hold of him and to say to him, this shall not be unto thee. Now, this shows us something, doesn't it, that Peter, along with the other disciples, who I'm sure were within agreement, they were just totally shocked, that Jesus would say, I am going to be killed. They had to be in agreement with this, and they were all shocked. And I wish that they were shocked and stirred because the thought of Jesus dying was first and foremost in their mind, and, and the thought of him suffering at their hand was grievous to them, unthinkable to them. I wish that was the problem, but that wasn't even their problem. What was their problem? Well, you'll see if you read before and keep reading all the way up to the shadow of the cross, they were still thinking about, you know, who's going to sit on your right hand? Who's going to sit on your left hand? when you were coming into your kingdom. Because they were not thinking about a dying Messiah. They were thinking about a reigning Messiah. And I can take the time to show you that throughout the scripture that they even, uh, Jesus moved out of the way lest they take him by force to make him king. And what the Jews were primarily thinking about in this time in relation to the Messiah was liberation and freedom from Rome. And the Roman oppression. I don't have time to go into it, but you can read the, some of the history yourself that their life was made miserable by the oppression of Rome. The people were way overtaxed. I think we're overtaxed. But we wouldn't want to trade with them under Rome, I guarantee you that. And they were a very, very oppressed people, and Rome operated by fear and such as that. And so they were a people that wanted so bad to be liberated from this Gentile power that they despised and hated. And, and, and they were hated by that Gentile power. And, and they were thinking, the Messiah's here. What's he going to do? He's going to liberate us from Rome. He's going to sit on the seat of David, like the Bible says, on the throne of David. And he is going to reign and restore Israel. Israel back to prominence in the world again. And that's what they were thinking. And that's why they kept talking and saying, um, who's going to sit on the right hand? Who's going to sit on the left? 
who's going to, even one of them, their mama got involved and said, I want one of my sons on your right, how humble of her, and my other son on your right when you reign in your kingdom. So what were they thinking about Jesus being the Messiah, reigning upon this earth, restoring Israel to prominence in the world, and liberation from the oppression of Rome. And when, look, look at me just a second. When Jesus said, I will go to Jerusalem and be killed, their expectations came, boom, crashing to the ground. Because they were expecting to reign with him and have position with him and status with him. And they didn't understand even what Messiahship meant. They didn't. So Jesus has to answer Simon Peter. And if you wonder, why did he say, don't tell any man what you just said, that I am the Christ, the Son of the God, Son of the living God? Why would he say to them, don't tell anyone? They didn't have the right message. They, they, they hadn't read their Bibles very well. They hadn't read Isaiah lately, where Isaiah said that when he comes, he'll be the suffering one. I don't have time to go turn to it or get all into it this, tonight, but if you turn to Isaiah chapter 53, you got a clear picture that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be the suffering one. He's going to take the punishment for all of our iniquities and all of our transgressions. He's going to bear the scars and the, and, and the marks that you and I should have. And he is going to pay the price for us. And, and, and that's who the Messiah is, and that's why Jesus came, that he might die. And the disciples are thinking of reigning, and Jesus is thinking of suffering and dying, which is his Father's will. Somebody say amen. This is the purpose for which he came, to pay for the sins of the whole world. And Jesus then answers Simon Peter, verse 23, and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. <gasps> he called him Satan. Well, he knows he's not the devil. Come on. What, then why did he call him Satan? Because of what Satan means. Adversary. Opponent. And what Jesus is simply saying to Peter is, as long as you're in my face telling me what I will and will not do, then you're an opponent to my Father's will. And you need to get out of my face and get around behind me and follow me like I said to you from day one. Follow me. And so he's rebuking Peter, and he said to him, watch this now in verse 23, you, thou savorest, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Look at me here just a second, if you were here the uh, night before last. He wasn't thinking at this level from the viewpoint of God. He was thinking at this level from the viewpoint of man. And Jesus has to rebuke him, and he has to correct him. And so the, he had said to them, now don't you go tell anybody uh, that I said, that you well said, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't you tell anybody. Why would he not want them to tell him? Because they would tell him the wrong thing. That it's time to reign. Israel's coming back in the world. The son of David will sit on the throne of David. Is everybody with me here? That is the problem. And if you went and read Luke's account, you'll see that Luke said that the disciples understood none of these things. They, they were clueless. They didn't know what Messiahship meant. They tried to bypass the suffering part. And he must needs suffer. I said he must needs suffer. He must needs take the punishment for our sin. They were trying to bypass that and go right to the throne of David. And Jesus said, no, we don't do that. It's not my father's will. Then you have a, that paragraph marker because now he's going to shift his teaching. What's he going to teach them about? Well, let me say this. If they didn't understand what his Messiahship meant, I think there's a pretty fair possibility they didn't understand what discipleship meant because they thought, thought discipleship was exercising power as he reigns. And if he's going to reign, somebody's going to be at his right hand, somebody's going to be at his left hand. Peter and Andrew might have been saying, why not us? James and John were definitely saying, why not us? And I don't even know how it went among the rest of them. I know that the attitude of James and John 
and Zebedee's wife, their mother, uh, that caused contention among the disciples. There was strife among them about this elbowing and pushing and shoving, trying to get in there to where I have a meaningful position. When he reigns, he's going to die. And you're talking about his reigning? So if they didn't understand his Messiahship and what that meant, they couldn't possibly know what discipleship meant. So who should teach them? <laughs> well, you know the answer to that. Look down in verse number 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny myself. Can I have your attention, please? Just a second. Their brain was going this way, exalting themselves. If somebody say amen, I'd keep going. They were thinking reigning with him. They were exalted. They were thinking about power, position, yeah, status. We've been with him the whole time. Yes, sir, he's going to sit on this throne of David. He's going to reign. Israel's going to be restored. There has to be somebody that has authority. Who else would he appoint to positions of authority? Now, what is so interesting about this, for you that are thinking ahead, that's actually going to happen. I said, that's actually going to happen. They're going to have key positions when Jesus reigns upon this earth for a thousand years, and he will reign upon this earth for a thousand years. And for the first time in history, the world is going to see how government is supposed to be run because Jesus is the governor. See? Yes, sir. But that's not where they are now. They know nothing of fellowship. They know nothing of discipleship. And Jesus said to them, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Now, I usually don't read a lot of stuff, but I got to read the definition for deny, just, you know, technical definition and make sure we got it. To deny, okay? If you're going to be his disciple, then you must deny yourself. You say, oh, I don't know what you mean it costs. <laughs> you have to pay. I'll be right back to this. Can you, can you hold with me for just a second? I'll be right back to this. I, see, I have this imagination. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes she says it's weird. So I'm sure that's true, but I'm trying. So I'm having this imagination. So I picture like an assembly like this. And um, Jesus is here. And so I say, so Jesus, these are your disciples right here. Here they are on a Tuesday night. These are your disciples. And I think he would say, yes, some of them are. Some of them are. Yes, some of them are. Well, I, uh, I thought, you know, let's, let's just assume, it's probably not so, but let's assume everybody's a member of Grace Baptist Church, and, you know, you made a profession, you got baptized, your name's on the church roll. Let's just assume that. Well, but Master, I mean, these are all members of Grace Baptist Church, and so you said some of them are your disciples. Why did you say that? He said, because some of them are. Well, that means some of them aren't. Well, he said, all of the redeemed are redeemed. All of the saved are saved. But not everybody that's redeemed can qualify as my disciple. Oh. Why not? They haven't paid. They haven't paid. They haven't paid. Master, what could we possibly pay to become your disciple? What could we give you? Your will? For my Father's will? If you don't give me your will for my will, and you insist upon your will, you can't be my disciple. If there is no willingness to deny self, you can't be, if you got saved, you're saved. You can call yourself saved, but don't go tossing the word disciple around because it costs to be his disciple. A convenient discipleship 
exists only in people's imagination. There's no reality to it. There's no such thing as a convenient discipleship. We either give him our will, or let's put it another Bible way. We either die to self, or we could word it another way. We learn what it is to crucify self, or we walk in our own way. And Jesus said, come on, the words are right here. You don't have to be a Greek scholar or a theologian to understand this. Jesus said unto his, if any man will come after me, if you're going to really indeed be my disciple, let him deny himself. Deny, disown, abstain from self-will. To affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with. To forget one's own self and self-interest. That's what the word that he used means. I didn't just make these up. I, I looked them up. I checked it out. You do the same. Okay, let's run about that again. To disown. Abstain from self-will. To affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with. Uh, somebody says, well, I don't, okay, but deny, uh, 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 what? What do we call Peter's actions when he said, I know not the man? Three times. What do you call that? It's the infamous denial of, uh, of Jesus. What did he do? He disowned or abstained from any association with him. He affirmed that he has no acquaintance with him. Yes, our man Simon Peter. That's what happened. He denied that he knew him. And, and to forget one's own self and self-interest. That's what deny means. Now, look, Jesus made this so clear. You want to be his disciple? You want to be a follower of Jesus? You, you want to be genuine? You want to be true? Excuse me just a second. The world has seen so much of fake discipleship they're not even interested in the gospel. Fake discipleship does more damage than fake news. And fake news does plenty of damage. But in the whole scheme of things, fake discipleship is more destructive than fake news. People professing to be followers of Jesus while they live for themselves. Well, they will not pay the price. Mm, that's a high price to pay. Certainly nothing about our culture is encouraging us to be selfless, is it? <laughs> uh, if you don't like basketball, I don't blame you, pro basketball. But we just happen to, if it's got Oklahoma on it, I'm all for it. So I was an Oklahoma City Thunder fan, and Kevin Durant was the young star coming up in the NBA. And he came and played in Oklahoma City. And we should have had a couple of uh, NBA championships, one for sure. And, and uh, he and Russell Westbrook uh, blew it themselves. They got us there, and then they got us out. But nonetheless, finally the time came that uh, Kevin Durant said he's leaving. He's going to go play for the Golden State Warriors. Anyway, did I just do that? So anyway, he's going to go play for them, you know. And so Kevin's going to play. Well, he can do what he wants to. That's his business. He can do that. And he's going. But he hadn't made a decision. And the Oklahoma City Thunder fans waited and waited and waited. And then it was on July the 4th that Kevin Durant announced that from he was way out at the end of Long Island, what they call the Hamptons out there, and only the ritzy people go there. And he had a whole entourage and a big fancy place rented there. And he's trying to weigh this out. Should I stay in Oklahoma City? Should I go to Golden State? Should I take another offer somewhere else and so finally he made his decision and everybody in Oklahoma came down on him and they still boo him when he comes to Oklahoma City which just doesn't bother me any at all I don't go to the games but I'm just saying and then so that's what he did well here's the thing he came out and said the thing that this is typical of our culture is why I'm telling you he said the thing that really made me make my choice was what my dad told me and his dad had just come back in his life, hadn't been in his life since he was an infant. And now dad's just come back into his life. And he said, my dad told me, Kevin, sometimes to be a man, 
If you were here for the men's deal, you know what we're talking about. Sometimes to be a man, you have to be very, very selfish. And Kevin said, I knew my dad was right. Sports commentators said, he's right. He's right. Well, most of the world would say, he's right. But we're not talking about fitting in with most of the world. We're talking about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm just telling you, a self-centered, excuse me, me-focused culture and society has a way of finding its influence under church doors and going amongst congregations and affecting the people of God that ought to know better until most church problems don't have to do with doctrine. Most church problems don't have to do with moral issues. Most church problems have to do with pure, unadulterated selfishness which is just directly the opposite of what Jesus asked for. And that's a fact. If you want to be my disciple, then learn what it is to pay the price. What's that? To pay the price means that you give me your will, I give you my will. You've got to lay yours down. You've got to put it down and walk away from it. You've got to recognize this is not my life. I am not living on my own. I am not living unto myself. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, I love this verse where he said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live, how many of you are saved? You were dead in sin and now you're alive. And that he died for all, that they which live, should not henceforth, that means, well, the King James henceforth, I don't know what that means. Well, I bet you do. You think it means looking back. Well, no, it doesn't mean backward. It means forward. Okay, so let me run that by again. I interrupted myself. I just felt the need to throw that in there. And so, and that if he died for all, then we're all dead. And if he died for all, then we're all dead. That we henceforth, that we who live should not henceforth from here forward live unto ourselves, but unto him who loved us and gave himself for us. <laughs> there it is right there. The selfless life. Not my will, his will. And I found that God brings us to crossroads if we profess that we want to follow Jesus, he's going to bring us to some crossroads where we got to make up our mind, my will or his. My will or his. My will or his. You can do it your way, but you don't choose the results. Second thing he said, and I'm going to come back to all this in a minute. Second thing he said is, and take up his cross and follow me. Every once in a while, you'll hear somebody say, yeah, well, did you know they're back in the hospital again? Oh, my goodness, they've been in the hospital for years with that. I guess it's just their cross to bear. That's a terrible abuse of what cross-bearing means. She married him. She married him. It's just her cross to bear. No, she made a bad decision, and she's going to live with it. <laughs> That's not cross-bearing. No, cross-bearing is when you take it voluntarily. Let this, uh, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You can look far and near and in all of history and you'll never see anything that is a greater demonstration of self-denial and taking up the cross than Jesus laying down his will, though he said, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then he went to the cross, and the cross was the most lowly death a human being could die. 
If you had it on a ladder, this is a, a terrible way for a person to be executed. This is a terrible way for a person to be executed. This is another terrible way. The last rung on the ladder would be the Roman cross. And he took it voluntarily. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. And he laid down his life for us. He bare the cross. It's an instrument of shame and reproach. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They reproached him. And while he was on that cross, ladies and gentlemen, he deserved none of the reproach. He was there for our reproaches that he made his own. That's, that's what Peter said. He took our reproach, our shame, our sin before God. Shame on us for sinning against God. Shame on us. Well, I was born a sinner, I know. But since then, you mean to tell me you've never made a decision to sin? No, we have, we do, we sin. Shame on us. Jesus took all the shame that belonged to us on that cross. He did. And the reproach. To, to be a reproach means to be disgusting, to be shameful. You're a, you're a disgrace to your own people. You're a disgrace to humanity. And Jesus took that on the cross of Calvary. Now he says, you, put your name there. You, you, go ahead. I got to put my name there. You want to be my disciple? Do you realize the reproach that goes with being... Jesus, this is a good time to talk about this. You know how there are Jews that are not sure they want anybody to know that they're Jews right now? Huh? Did you know this same thing happened in Germany? The rise of Adolf Hitler where Jews were denying Jews because they didn't want to be identified with being a Jew because of the reproach and the hate, the shame the misery brought upon them. Um, do we think the world is in such a state that they would appreciate it if they heard us sing glory in the cross? It, when as a matter of fact, in many so-called church and religious or Christian organizations, they've taken the blood out of the songs. And the reproach of the cross is not anything that anybody wants to talk about. It's not pleasant. We live in a very hypersensitive society and we can't talk about all of that. No, what Jesus said, Jesus says. He said, you're going to be my disciple. You can't be focused upon yourself. You've got to be willing to lay your self-will aside and accept my will. We may have to crucify ourselves daily, which the Apostle Paul said he did, but he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He understood what it meant. And we are willing to do that, but listen to this. In order to do that, we must understand that we will also identify with the reproach and shame of being a follower of Jesus in a wicked generation, in a wicked, debauched world where the spirit of Antichrist is strong at work. See, this isn't the kind of thing that, well, this is what's put on a person, and that's just the cross they have to bear. No, this is like Moses when he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's what we're talking about, a willful identification with Jesus, even knowing you've got family members that are going to call you crazy. Hmm. Yeah. Even knowing the people at work, they might call you deacon preacher because you talk to somebody about Jesus and are not ashamed to identify with him. Yeah, it might be going to school, girls, and not dressing like Barbie. My wife said, you know there's a movie about Barbie? No, I'm talking about the old Barbie of the old days that 
skinny little girl that they would dress up like a prostitute. And then everybody wanted their girls to look like that. God have mercy. Lord help us. Sick. Yeah, but that's what everybody is wearing. I, I feel so weird. Well, what if your dad says, I want to talk about the Lord, but I feel so strange. My dad ought to be a man, stand up and speak about the Lord. Well, then you ought to grow up Amen. and be willing to identify as a Christian. Decent. Modest. I'll go back to Saturday. Manly if you're a male. Feminine if you're a female. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, I mean, people would think, I, was, I mean, you have your kids dressed. <laughs> well, people are, people are going to think you're weird. You're worried about them thinking you're weird? <laughs> have you looked around lately? <laughs> you want to talk about weird? And you're worried about weirdos calling you a weirdo? Goodness sakes alive. I think all of us need to do like our old friend brother, Dr. Don Green. Did you ever meet him or know of him up in Michigan? Dear old servant of God. And Don Green told me one time, he said, Brother Sam, I learned a long time ago to divorce myself from the influence of public opinion. Because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I really have no interest in what people are saying about me. All I care is I'm going to meet the Lord and I want to please my Lord. How simple can we get? That's what he's talking about. But that's what he said discipleship is. Uh, deny yourself. Take up the cross. Well, that, that's a high cost. Well, actually, the cost is high either way. Because now when we talk about cost, we're not talking about what it costs for us to go to heaven. That's a high cost, all right. And, but I didn't pay for that. And you didn't pay for your salvation. I said, salvation's a high cost, but we didn't pay that cost. God paid that cost when he gave his son who went to that cross to bear our sins in his body on that tree. For God hath made him to be sin, the sin bearer. God hath made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The price is immeasurable. But we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about fellowship. And it's going to cost either way. Because you deny yourself and follow him and identify with his cross and the shame and the reproach of Jesus in an unbelieving world. You identify with that. And here's what he said. If you lose your life to me and my will, you'll find it. <laughs> if, you'll, if you'll lose your life to my will, you'll find it. I said, we come to crossroads. I said to my dad, when I'm 15, Dad, I'm not going to camp this summer. My dad said, boy, you're going to camp. I said, I believe I will. So I went to camp. And I went to camp determined they're not getting me this time. No way. Along about Wednesday, everybody's going down at the altar and slobbering all over the place and hugging each other and crying and blowing their nose at the altar. And those guys would preach and tell their stories and here they would come. And I'm 15, almost 16, and I'm saying, not me, I'm way too cool for this. I didn't use the word cool, but that's what I was thinking. And so, yes, sir. And I did. I mean, I held out till Wednesday night. And God got a hold of my heart, my soul. And I don't have time to go into the detail of it, but I thought if that preacher will ever stop preaching, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to blow my nose, hug everybody, and apologize. I My mom was there. I was rebel, and my mom went to camp. That's always a blessing if you got a godly mom going to camp when you're trying to be a rebel. And I got right with my mom, and I got right with my pastor, and I got right with other kids in the youth group that I'd had fist fight with, and I got right with everybody but my sisters. I don't think I paid any attention to them, but I got right with everybody 
everybody else. And man, I, God got a hold of my heart. I went back home and about three weeks after that, I mean, on a Sunday night, our pastor's preaching and I surrendered to preach. I knew God is just saying to me, Sam, the only thing you can do with your life is what I've called you to do and I'm calling you to preach that night. I went down, surrendered my life that night and I thought, here we go. Isn't this amazing? Because I love preachers. And except for, you know, those little rebellious seasons, I love preachers. I like preaching and all that. And so I knew God called me to be a preacher. I, I, I knew that. Now I was doing fine off and on, off and on, kind of up and down. Then I met Sandra, and she was a year behind me in school. It's time for me to go off to Bible college. But if you knew our hometown, it would be like most everybody else's hometown. I'm not going to leave her back in that high school, those bunch of creeps. I, I'm, I'm going to wait, and we're going to go to Bible college together. So I waited that year and got backslidden and running from God and decided I'm not going to be a preacher after all. And after she graduated then, I about lost her as my girlfriend because I went out there just running from the Lord like a Jonah. And I'm, I'm running out there, and all of a sudden I'm going through this time in my life where I can't sleep at night. I'm 19 years old, and I'm working like a dog, and, and I can't sleep at night. And when I do sleep, I'm dreaming about a tractor rolling off in a big creek, and I die on that tractor. I, one night I got run through the header of a combine. I got harvested one night. I mean, it was just awful. I was dreaming about these things. My parents, I had a great relationship with them. I was the last kid at home out of six, and I had a wonderful relationship. My dad said, son, I'm going to talk to you, and I'm a boy. And I was in trouble with my dad. I was not nice to my mom. This is all, I, told, I about lost hers, my girlfriend. I was just fouling up everything. And I'll never forget that day when it rained and we couldn't be in the field. And I went to town to go take her to lunch at the drugstore job she had. I was going to take her out. And she had to do So I had to work her later noon or something. And so I was riding around our little town square there, four or 5,000 people. I drove by the church. If you go around the square and then you go up Cedar Street, go down to the swimming pool in Lions Park, you turn around and you go back and you ride around the square the other way. That's just the way you do it. Did it. They don't do it anymore, but we did. Well, I got up there to the 11th and Cedar, and there's the pastor's green 62 Chevy sitting there. And I'm sitting at the four-way stop. And something in here, I know it wasn't the devil. I know it wasn't my flesh. Something in here says, go talk to the pastor now. And I sat there, and I shook it off. Go talk to him. And I drove around and did the circle again. I came back the second time. And it was stronger, and I sat there, and I got tears in my eyes, and I thought, what in the world is happening to me? I said, no, no way. I'm not doing that. Came back the third time. I didn't hear any voices, nothing weird, but some overwhelming sense was you go in there and talk to that pastor and get yourself surrendered to God's will now or never. I didn't hear that in my ears, but I felt that every, with all of my might in here. I'm allowing it was the Lord just by process of elimination. Would the devil want me to get right with God? No. Did my flesh want to get right with God? No. I'd been doing what my flesh wanted to do. Well, that just kind of doesn't leave hardly any other source. And so I did. I went and knocked on the door of the pastor's office. Come in. Come in. I opened the door and he said, hi, Sam, what are you doing here? I said, his name was Dan Tidwell. I said, Brother Dan. I just started crying and just fell down on the floor. And he had me sit on the couch. He came over to the couch, sat down beside me. Wouldn't it be nice to have a pastor who would say, Son, we've been praying for you and we love you and we know that you, I knew you'd be back. This is so wonderful. Oh, no, not my pastor. No, he spent 15, 20 minutes telling me what a scuzzball I was for the way I'd been running from God and had a sweetest girl in Perry, Oklahoma as my girlfriend and future wife, and my mom was one of the godliest people he ever met in his life, and you've had all these privileges, and I mean, he just, <laughs> I was already down here, and he just goes, <laughs> down like that, and I surrendered. I, I said, I got to lose my life. I'm not saying I was perfect from there. She's sitting right here. Why would I say that? But, but nothing's been the same since then. And now I'm 78 years old, and I'm looking back. And I know it's the sunset time. I understand that. And we talk about the life we've lived the last 57 years. 
And Jesus said, if you'll lose your life to me, you'll find life. And I wish that some of you could travel around with us and meet the people that we meet that come up and say, you were preaching at youth camp, or I came to Heartland, or you led my dad to the Lord, or you baptized me, or on and on. Am I telling this right? It goes and we look at each other. And, it, and I think, I think, I wanted to pursue my own thing. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to farm. I love farming everything about it. And I came to the conclusion, if I'd have farmed, I could easily, easily be $5 million in debt by now. <laughs> Look what I gave up to follow Jesus. Instead, we found life. We found life. And following Jesus is what kept our marriage together, what kept it growing and being coming what it is. I'm, I'm just telling you, we, just like he said. So you may say, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to do that. That's too big a price to give up my will. Oh, it's high either way. Because he said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And you keep your will, you miss his abundant life. That's the calculation you have right there. That's what he said. We ought to be growing stronger and climbing higher. And free discipleship doesn't exist. Convenient discipleship doesn't exist. It doesn't. You're sold out to his will or you're going to make it your own way. But it costs to follow him. But it costs more in my estimation to not follow him. <laughs> and I believe I have the word of God on my side. Thank you, Lord, for the attention folks have given to your word tonight. May we each one evaluate our discipleship. There, there are some in here that are flirted with being. It's very possible. There are some in here that are flirted with being genuine disciples. But then, well, now that means I would have to. But that means I couldn't or I wouldn't get to. No, no, I'll still flirt with it. And there are some that just cannot think of beyond their own will. There are some that have been conditioned or conditioned themselves so pressed into the mold of worldly thought that they really believe that everybody ought to be primarily concerned about what they want. It's all about the self. May we hear Jesus' simple words. If you'll be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You can save your life for yourself, but you lose it. Or you can lose yourself to my will and find it. Now I pray right choices and decisions be made at this invitation time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? The Spirit of